The following podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It does not reflect the views or opinions of my university or its affiliates. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and as always, welcome to the Sister Wives Professor. That is me. I am Dr. Adam, a professor of interpersonal and family communication and a longtime follower of the TLC series Sister Wives. That is, of course, what I have the privilege of talking to you about today. Hey, if this is your first time tuning into the podcast, welcome. Thank you so much for giving it a try. I really hope you stick around. For those of you that are already subscribed, you know how much I appreciate you. Thank you so much. A couple quick notes before we get to the episode, okay? First of all, if you did not catch it, I was able to do a guest spot with Michelle on the podcast, Blighty Day Fiance. We talked about all kinds of sister wives stuff, Brown family dynamics, and even played a round of trivia where Michelle had me guess whether a quote was either a real quote from the Brown family or from one of the fictional characters from the American version of The Office. It was super fun. Michelle and Robin do a great job on their podcast. So if you have not checked out Blighty Day Fiance, I highly recommend it. Please do so. And second, of course, as always, I've got to give a big shout out to my amazing patrons, at patreon.com slash the sister wives professor who continue to make this podcast possible. Thank you so much. Let's get to the show. Season two, episode 10, titled Gambling on the Future. Cody opens the show in a talking head, and his hair looks different. It actually took me until about halfway through rewatching this episode to remember that, like, analysis show from season 10 where they revealed that back at this point Cody had gotten a haircut and his hair was too short so for continuity sake for the TV show he had to have extensions put in that's what's going on it took me forever but it clicked with me I know I don't have the best reputation for things about style shall we say but I thought Cody looked pretty good I actually think Cody's hair looks the best it ever looks in this episode, maybe in part because the extensions at least know what hair is supposed to look like. 
Cody is sad, by the way. He's, his eyes are downcast. He's looking off to the side. He's got a furrowed brow. And he slowly and silently lowers his head, tucks his chin. They're cutting in voiceover on top of this footage from the very beginning of episode one. Cody saying, I like marriage. I adopted a faith that embraces that lifestyle. And, you know, the footage where he's riding in the sports car and he's all giddy to be talking to the camera, talking about how hopefully he'll be good with four wives. And they're cutting back and forth from this current downcast brooding Cody. And then the older black and white footage from the beginning of season one. The way this was cut, it felt kind of more like a movie trailer to me than an episode of Sister Wives. I did not find the rewatching of this to be particularly emotionally effective, but I bet back in the day, the first time I saw this when it aired, I probably did. The thing is now we just, we know so much, don't we, about this move to Vegas. And I'm going to talk all about the motivation and the way Cody portrays his emotions regarding the move to Vegas in this episode. But it, this just didn't land with me that we're supposed to feel sympathetic to Cody because, frankly, I just don't. We're back to the current talking head Cody with his hair extensions, and he's kind of out of breath, almost like he's hyperventilating. He's taking a lot of breaths between words, which is rare for him. He says that the police have turned over their findings to the district attorney, and he gets a lot more animated and widens his eyes, emphasizing that we've decided, as a family to move to Nevada. And I can't help but feel like he's emphasizing the we've decided as a family words because he is very specifically doing that. He's doing it on purpose, I think, to refute and push back on all the grief that Christine had been giving him in the last episode. Cody's kind of funny that way. He wants to be the leader who makes the unilateral decisions and barks orders and has them obeyed when he wants to be. He seems quite happy to delegate things like parenting or finances to various wives when he's not interested or isn't able to do so. But when he decides to key in and become leader and people don't just roll with it, that seems to really irritate him. He says that they've told the older kids, but they have not told the younger ones yet. And he stares silently at the camera as it fades to black with the sound of Cody calling the family together. Everyone's in the big house gathered around for the big reveal about the move the teenagers who already know look distraught, very upset. Logan is on the floor with an arm over the side of the couch. Cody doing the old salesperson trick of asking questions with affirmative answers early on asks, who likes being a family? And a lot of them eagerly raise their hands, including I saw Dayton, Isabel, Savannah, and Aurora. Mary even raises a hand too and kind of smiles off camera. I'm thinking she's smiling at Leon, but I'm not sure. In contrast, McKelty is crossing her arms and sunk very deep into the couch, does not raise an arm. She looks just miserable. Cody asks more positive questions. Are they a special family? And the younger kids kind of whoop and get excited and are shushed by the teenagers for their effort. Peyton gets a lot of attention in this episode's footage, in this scene in particular, including from me, both because of his emotional reaction but also he just so happens to be sitting in an office chair next to Cody. So he's just in a lot of the footage of Cody. Cody says that we need to keep the family together. And he raises his eyebrows, points, I think, at Dayton and approval, maybe. Says nothing can break it, meaning the family. For some reason throughout this, by the way, he has a notebook and a pen in his hand. I have no idea why. I'm guessing maybe he was going to, like, write down various kids' concerns, 
so that they felt heard, but that's just me speculating. I think picking up on where Cody might be going here, or at least his emotion, Payton turns to his dad and frowns in concern with his arms crossed over his chest as well. When Cody says they're moving to Las Vegas, Payton just jerks his head around in confusion and shock. Several kids sound really excited, yelling yes and yeah. But Payton incredulously says, what? Looking at his dad, who is not returning his gaze. Gwen puts both hands on her head and asks if her dad is crazy. He's out of his mind. She might be upset, but she sounds more excited and is kind of pretending to be upset. I really couldn't tell. Gabriel is next to her, and I think he's one of the happy ones. He has his mouth open and his hands outstretched. I can't be sure, but he may have been one of the ones who cheered. Payton confirms that he's mad. He likes this home, too. And Cody finally looks directly at him and actually leans towards him, too, which shows immediacy and care. He tries to soothe him by saying, hey, I get it. And Aspen and Leon are next to each other on the couch, both looking miserable. Leon is even crying. Cody's trying to show understanding, saying that the home has been magical, but the magic is them, the family, so that's why they're moving. Isabel, with Mary smiling at her supportively, asks, well, when are we going to move? And Cody affirms her, saying that's a great question. He apologizes for the secrecy, and then drops the bigger bomb even that they have to move in three days. This really shocks people, including kids like Gabe, who had previously been excited. Hayden looks heartbroken. Garrison does too, really rubbing his face, seemingly crying. In a talking head, Cody repeats the whole we won't live in fear line, which gets used a lot in the context of this move, both to justify Cody's decisions and also Christine pushing back on them, which I thought was kind of interesting. Cody's very serious in tone and expression says that people in Vegas are going to be a lot more tolerant. And Cody continues to engage Garrison, who is clearly upset, using more affirming language, saying that he gets his feelings. But then he kind of quickly looks away from Garrison, which could indicate a lack of sincerity. But I also think Cody's just overextended in this moment. There are so many kids, so many adults, so many people who have big emotional needs right now. It's one of those really telling moments in the Brown family where you get the sense of that there are just too many people for especially one father to address properly because all kids, all teenagers, all adults have emotional needs that need to be met. And some of them you handle on your own because you have to. But I, just, I cannot imagine the shock and how upset all these different kids must be and how impossible it would be to really support all of them as much as they need. Payton is crying, he's shaking his head. Payton has such a hard time in this episode, I'll talk more about that. Cody trying to be supportive of him, and Christine is holding both Baby Truly and Isabel, who was just distraught as well at this point. Cody looking hangdog and sad, but at this point coming across completely insincere to me. Says, this is extremely important. Guess what? You can't tell anybody else. He does not seem sincere. He does not seem contrite about this, and his kids are so upset. It's just overwhelming to watch. Cody, I think, in reaction to this in a talking head, says that he was so upset he didn't do a good job selling it to them. And he's kind of half right, half wrong. I, I do think he did a bad job selling the move, but I think it's because Cody was doing a bad job faking being contrite about this. I don't think he's sorry. He may be sorry that the kids are upset, but he completely wants to move, by the way. And this is a hard thing to sell to kids. 
Sometimes kids can get excited about a move, but almost always the reality of leaving friends behind, sometimes leaving school, who knows what else, sometimes family members, can be really, really hard. And it's delicate. It's tricky for any parent and any child to navigate. And Cody, he's not doing the worst possible job he can do, but I just don't know how he could have handled this well no matter what he did. Side note, because you know I love stuff like this, behind Cody in the Entertainment Center, on a shelf, on DVD, the entire Lord of the Rings Extended Edition. Heck yes, if you're going to watch Lord of the Rings, and you should, you need to watch the Extended Edition. Anything else, you're just cheating yourself. Yeah, all three movies combined are like 12 hours long. What's wrong with that? Tell me. Nothing. Nothing. The answer is nothing. Cody says that he had to address the whole thing with the teenagers after, as he puts it, all the fallout, the tears, the heartbreak. I do think this was a good move to address it with the teenagers alone without the rest of the kids, to allow them to maybe be more honest about their feelings and not make the little kids even more upset. The teenagers on the couch all look miserable, especially Hunter. In a talking head, Cody closes his eyes, leans his head back for emphasis as he's trying so hard not to be defensive with them. And I think, for Cody, that's impressive reflexivity, that he's acknowledging that he does feel defensive and he has to moderate that emotion, because he does. Madison doesn't do a great job here. With some sass, she points at her sibling and says, what about Leon? Leon notably has their mom's arm around them, also touching their face. This is a clear contrast, as Garrison, who's quite a bit younger than Leon, is seated next to them, and he's not being comforted physically kind of shows that different and really unique physical communication style between Leon and their mom. There's discussion of how Leon goes to church school, and the move means that's not an option anymore. Cody even admits this. He says that Leon has a significant amount to lose with the move. Leon's siblings all start cross-talking, fired up, I think using Leon's situation sorry as leverage against the move they don't like, rather than really trying to protect their sibling here. As an example, Madison, not kind at all, says, do you realize how weird Leon already got with public school? Which is such a, I felt like a really cruel way of saying that. Now, to be fair, Madison is a teenager and she's upset. I, I do understand. But Leon is silently crying with Mary's arm around them. This whole thing, again, it just felt infantilizing. And like they were using Leon more as a tool to kind of address their own needs rather than genuine care. Leon stands up for themselves, breathing heavy, says, don't you think I've thought about all this? And in essence is saying, I'm aware of these things already. You don't need to speak for me. Robin is sitting on the floor near Mary and asks the teens, well, what do you want to do? And Aspen says, well, Leon should be able to do what they want to do. Cody shuts this down right away, leans forward, denoting like seriousness and kind of moving into people's space a little bit, serious, intense in his voice. says, we are all going as a family until you're 18. Cody is a little bit nervous, though. He's fiddling with his random diary of Tom Riddle notebook he's got right there. And he pretty patiently listens to Leon read a list of different concerns they have about the move after Mary prompted them to do so. Cody nods a lot. He makes eye contact. I think both Mary and Cody know that the list writing and the reading of it is fruitless. But I will say, and I think they knew this, it's a good way to at least let Leon have a voice, like literally, and have whatever tiny little bits of control they can get access to. Leon reads the list and is quite emotional. 
knows things like an upcoming church school dance. Cody recounts this to the camera, and he sounds empathetic and understanding that these are valid things to a teenager. And he's got a bit of a smile on his face. I think probably remembering how he felt as a teenager. He really does do a good job of validating Leon in this moment that these are real concerns. He says that he understands that Leon has needs emotionally and spiritually, makes a lot of eye contact, serious expression. He's, in this moment, effectively non-verbally backing up his words, validating his child. But of course, he has to reiterate at the end, he can't indulge all these things until they're 18. Cody falls back on some God talk about his sort of biblical responsibility to protect his kids, at least until they're 18. And he pauses in thought and says, if not beyond that, until you're married. And I made note of this because it's almost accidental shades of what's to come in Robin's home. You know what I mean? Cody very calmly, even warmly, continues to talk about his responsibility given to him by God to protect Leon and have them come with them. It's his job, he says. He's very intent with this and not mean, not cruel, firm, but caring. He reiterates that he understands and empathizes because he's leaving his own home and career. Now, that's not an entirely fair comparison because he's at least making a choice and he does have a choice. Here's the thing about the move, by the way. I do think they needed to move out of the big house. I, I absolutely do. You can see from the beginning after they go public that the big house, where it's at, paparazzi, anybody can access that house, can access that big front yard. There's no fencing. There's no protection for the kids. Any number of things could happen, accidental or intentional. I think the Browns had achieved enough fame that, yes, with all those little kids, they needed to be in a gated, protected neighborhood. Do those exist in the Lehigh area? I have no idea. I'm sure they exist somewhere in Utah. I don't think they needed to move to Vegas. So I think they're conflating the fact that the home and the area is no longer feasible with, well, we obviously have to move to Las Vegas. And I think that the investigation was their excuse to do that. That's my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. You let me know what you think. Send me an email, thesisterwivesprofessor at gmail.com. Or if you're on Spotify, leave a comment. Back at Robin's rental, she's helping the kids to pack. Robin is smiling, but with some resignation and real stress, says the plan of attack is put it in a box. She puts on a big smile, but she's clearly not enjoying this process, and honestly, who does? Robin is telling the camera about their schedule for moving, and Dayton interrupts, reminding her about his upcoming birthday. And Robin reaches out an arm and kind of warmly touches Dayton and says his birthday is tomorrow. And Dayton just beams at the camera about this, raises his arms in triumph. And Robin pivots back to the move, says, we're leaving Monday morning. The adults are on the couch now with Mary recounting the finding and losing of the four homes that they had discovered on Cody's reconnaissance mission. Robin points out there's a lot up in the air and she gets emotional. She winces, shakes her head and waves her hand, saying it, it all scares the crap out of her. On the couch, Cody is looking very intently at Robin, by the way. Cody does at this point still kind of look at any of the wives when they're talking or they seem upset especially, but he's always looked so intent with Robin whenever she seems upset. Robin even admits she's a little mad at God because he's letting all this happen to us. This also irritated me because, again, you are choosing to move. You are choosing to do this. She says she asks God for a miracle at times like this and smiles at the camera directly saying she pays for those thoughts. 
God always humbles her. Credit where credit's due, I don't associate Robin with self-awareness or self-deprecation as a rule, but she definitely displayed it here. Robin's daughters are both kind of hesitant about moving. They kind of like their current home, and it'll take time to adjust. Robin tells the camera they're jumping without a parachute. And she's got real mixed messaging in terms of her body language and tone. She seems like she's trying to make a positive spin on it, smiling and laughing, but it doesn't come across as humorous. Dayton says he'd hate that, meaning jumping out of a plane without a parachute, and even pantomime splatting under the ground. Robin, very supportive, does the same gesture and noise, which I thought was kind of sweet, and says, yeah, just like that, kind of like that. Cody enters the rental, gets a camera in his face for his trouble, which he seems to react with with an oof. Says hello to Dayton, who is currently carrying his sister Brianna over one shoulder like a sack of rice, and Cody doesn't feel like being a parent, just keeps on walking. Tells Robin that he has to start packing, and he seems kind of annoyed. Even says it's sad he can pack everything in a single suitcase. Well, I've got good news for you, buddy. You are going to spread out in Robin's house as much as you can. Robin also seems agitated and stressed, and I think Cody picked up on this because he hugs her in the bathroom, where we see that Robin as well has written some inspirational or positive sayings, specifically on the wall above the shower. The Browns do love to write on walls. On the couch, Mary kind of is commiserating with Robin, which really pushes Robin over the emotional edge. She starts crying, actual crying, there are tears, throws her head back, very frustrated, saying, I thought I was here, I thought I was here. I talk a lot about her crying adjacent behaviors, and this this was not this. She does similar things, like she dabs at her eyes a lot. But you can tell, you want to tell the difference? They, her eyes, are, she's crying, there are visible tears. It's very different from what we typically see, especially now. Anyway, Cody in his button-down shirt, packing his collection of other slightly different button-down shirts, kind of looking like he did a supermarket sweep at the Coles men's section, or maybe he owns nothing but Bob Ross cosplay. Just tremendous. Cody talks about the difficulty of it all, and you do hear a yell from the other room. And in a talking head, Cody clarifies he had heard Dayton and Aurora kind of getting into it, but he asserts himself and separates them, and it all seems fine. The point is, he tells the camera, everybody's stressed. But he says that doesn't mean they can turn on each other, which is true. So I moved a lot as a kid. I moved too much as a kid. I think my parents would admit that now. It wasn't great. It wasn't the worst thing either. But there's this quick little scene of Dayton in his emptied room, everything packed. He's got bare feet and lays down on his bed and kind of listlessly fires an empty motorized Nerf gun looking kind of silently at the camera. And this was so resonant. It was just this quick thing. and just took me back to being a kid and moving all the time and having no control over it. Weird kind of like connection to memories I hadn't accessed in a long time for me. Speaking of young men moving, Logan is helping Janelle pack back at the big house. Gabriel kind of tapping his finger, which has a toy boot. Looks like it's from a Barbie doll or a large G.I. Joe on one finger. Tap, tap, tapping. He says he kind of wants to stay, and he kind of wants to go. Should he stay, or should he go now? He smiles, though. He seems to be in good spirits. Hunter is not. He's chomping on a piece of pizza, as he's wont to do, and says he wants to rub his head on a cheese grater. Janelle, without much warmth or support, very matter-of-fact, says, not a great day for Hunter. Oof. You would hope she would address this more, and to be fair, maybe she did, off-camera. 
you can only address your child's concern so many times before you just kind of run out of things to say. Christine's in her toaster-free kitchen, very stressed. They're just getting ready to go, and she's trying to put a good face on it, I think, but again, she does seem stressed out. Mary's packing in Leon's bedroom, says they moved into the big house when Leon was 10. In Leon's closet, I saw a volleyball, some sort of Harry Potter board game, a postcard with some writing on it, and a lot of books, but I couldn't read the spines very clearly. Mary repeats Leon was 10, and Leon helpfully says, and you'd barely turn 35, which Mary repeats word for word with a sarcastic laugh. Did Mary need that? No. Did Mary deserve that? That's up to you to decide. More bedroom packing in Madison's room now with handprints and paint all over one wall. And I've mentioned this, but she has all kinds of inspirational phrases all over the walls, the closet walls, everywhere. There's a sewing machine, a stereo and speakers, lots of boxes. Maddie's on her knees, folding and packing clothes. They start cutting in some older footage of the teenagers on the couch. Madison talking about her dad could go to jail. Really, I think the image of the episode right here, Logan, looking just exhausted, sitting on the kitchen floor with just mountains of Tupperware in front of him, looking like he's just ready to go to sleep. Leon and their mom are putting things away in their room some more, more of this older couch footage of the teens kind of lamenting the situation. Mary now on the floor of her living room with Bonnie, her mom. We miss you, Bonnie. She finds a bunch of old newspaper obituaries from her sister, 26 copies to be exact. This might sound weird, but I actually completely get it. I haven't talked about this, I don't think, at all, even on Patreon, but I started this podcast in part as kind of a therapeutic project because in 2023, when I started the podcast, I had two people close to me within a couple months of each other uh, die, and among other things, I thought, I need to do something productive. I want to do something creative, something different. This is all just to say that Mary starts joking about she doesn't know why she saved all these obituaries, but I, I get it. You just you just hold on to stuff. I don't know. There's really no rhyme or reason to it. Mary's on the couch, understandably very emotional, eyes downcast as it's been five years since her sister passed, which isn't really all that much time. And her sister only lived 11 months after her cancer diagnosis. Mary does smile and laugh, not making eye contact, says so she doesn't know why she wanted to keep all those papers. She now says they'll use some of the obituaries to pack with. And Janelle on the couch, I think being really kind, says maybe it was Teresa saying, hey, I'm here. And this really connects with Mary. She even repeats it. Crying, says, I'm here. I see what you're doing. And Mary, Mary can barely speak. She says her sister would have been the first person she told and she would have helped her move immediately. That is one of those situations that can really unearth your grief in a big way things that still connect to people that aren't around anymore. Happens to me all the time. Like, this happened to me, I think, honestly, I think it was today. There's like a movie trailer that got released. And a friend of mine that passed away last year, I, I would have just, I almost did. I, I almost opened Facebook Messenger and sent it to him. And then I realized, wow, yeah, you don't do that anymore. So these things just surface in weird ways, unexpected ways. Cody's still at Robin's rental. Boxes, packing tape all over. Cody's sounding really stressed. Says, listen, listen. He's leaning on the kitchen peninsula for support. Talking to his phone. Says he's got a place big enough for everyone for a month that they can stay. 
until they find permanent housing. Cody explains to the camera that superstar real estate agent Mona found this place. It's big enough for everyone. There's a big yard, all kinds of stuff, and they can rent it for a month. He tells Janelle on the phone in Robin's house that it's not available until Tuesday. Till Tuesday. Hush, hush. Keep it down now. Voices carry. Cody, quite agitated, calls it freaky that the sheriff drove by their house today. Bear this in mind for later, when Cody starts telling other people not to be stressed about cops showing up, because it's fine for him right now, by the way. Christine, also in Robin's kitchen, helping pack, recounts that Aspen and Madison were spooked by a cop driving by earlier. Cody, in a talking head with his extensions, talks about the paranoia setting in. And I can't help but feel that Cody has been fostering this paranoia because it served him and that he wanted to move, and so it helped get people on board. But pretty soon he starts getting irritated that people are too paranoid now and too upset, which is his own fault. And Cody Intense is telling the camera that Christine is good with going, says Robin is good with going, then he kind of corrects himself and realizes she's in the room and he hadn't asked her. And Robin sort of half-heartedly says, yeah, she is, and laughs. Christine, as she likes to do, shouts things that are not productive and says, that was so hesitant. Cody jerks a thumb at Robin, laughing, and says, she hasn't shared a kitchen with the other wives yet. Cody keeps invoking this shared kitchen thing being an issue. The wives don't. So this clearly is an issue. We know this was an issue. We know kind of the backstory of it now, but it's just so strange that Cody, that doesn't really have a stake in this, feels so free to talk about it all the time. Cody gives Dayton $20 for his birthday in exchange for a hug. Says, everybody's got a price. Kind of like Cody's, like, good and gather brand, Ted DiBiase. That one was just for me. Dayton does give him a hug. Robin asserts to Dayton that, hey, now you can buy new stuff, like a dresser. And people can dunk on this moment all you want, but this is 100% me trying to sell my kids on this stuff. And just like my kids, Dayton is correct. A new video game console is a much better idea. Mary's at the big house as Leon is kind of deliberately ignoring their mom and Mary won't let it go, keeps fussing at them, playing with Leon's hair, asking Leon to look at her and and her kid doesn't want to do it and Mary won't let it go. I don't recommend this. So body autonomy for a kid, especially a teenager, is really important within reason, obviously. But especially when your teenager has no control over their life and is, I don't know, moving, it's a really good time to extend a bit more control over small things as much as possible, like don't touch them if they don't want to be touched. Don't expect them to talk to you if they don't want to. Give them something because you're taking away, you know, your child's life as they know it. Maybe for good reason, maybe not, but this just rubbed me the wrong way. On the couch with all the adults, Mary talks about Leon, saying that they're really involved in church, so the move is quite hard. She shakes her head with, emphasis saying there's no church group in Vegas and says that Leon kind of has been going back and forth with their mood and packing the room kind of tanked their emotions which I can completely understand because that just makes it so much more personal and real. Leon's still asking Mary don't touch me right now and Mary gets all annoyed don't do this stuff it, it really bothers me okay to be fair Leon is being very petulant about the move and Mary is kind of frustrated tries to reassure Leon, but is pretty done with it, says, 
I've done what I can. I'll talk to your dad. It's probably not going to happen. It reminded me of Janelle, what I said earlier. You do love your kid and you want to help your kid, but you can only have the same conversation so many times. There's some tense discussion in the kitchen about what to take and how to fit everything in various trailers. Mary and Christine disagreeing with Christine, wanting to bring basically everything and Mary basically nothing. Janelle doesn't even want to rent a big vehicle because she's afraid to draw attention to herself and the entire family. And Cody makes the decision after stressing his wives out, especially Janelle, cultivating all this anxiety because he wanted to move. He decides in the face of his wife's concerns to go full dickhead and just shout, too late. Great husbanding. I don't know how that didn't work out for you in the long run. Janelle in the talking head has gone full foxy librarian in a blue cardigan and glasses. Get it, girl. She is, however, subdued. Sounds tired almost talking about trying to move earlier. And she's frustrated talking to Cody. And she even admits that they are struggling relationally because of their different approaches to the move. Cody, who spearheaded this whole thing, is more taking it as it comes. And Janelle, because of who she is, she needs structure. She needs certainty. She needs a plan to feel comfortable. It's not that hard to figure out. Janelle even cries, which is pretty rare. She can't get words out talking about the impact this is having on her kids and how she's frustrated with Cody. And I think Cody, again, has stoked these fears and anxiety and paranoia. And now that it's inconvenient for him, he just wants to brush it off. Speaking of which, Cody continues to strain at the complications he's created. Tells Christine in her kitchen that everything's going great until I talk to your sister wife and gestures away from them to denote Janelle. Christine, kind of playful with this, says, your wife, and he says, she's your sister wife right now, and Christine even laughs at this. Christine seems to be taking Cody's side, which is just so different from now when Christine and Janelle are so bonded. You know what I mean? And Cody, who, by the way, remember, was previously really stressed out about seeing a random cop car, is now downplaying Janelle's paranoia about seeing the sheriff. This is just infuriating. Mary, by the way, wants to move right away. And she's in the kitchen, quite frustrated with her arms crossed, leaning back against the refrigerator. Cody says, we talked about it, we're not doing it. And she says, why? Because you and Robin just decided it? And I think she immediately realized how harsh that came out. And she says, sorry, just asking, but it didn't really release much tension, I don't think. Madison and Aspen say that a police car drove by and might have seen their trailer and know they're moving. This is groupthink and groupthink paranoia. So everyone is feeding on each other's and their own anxieties and exacerbating them and creating concerns that maybe are or aren't real. Christine, clearly frustrated, actually echoes Cody, saying they're making decisions based on fear. For Cody, that was about wanting to move. And for Christine, it's, I think, trying to temper things at this point. Mary pivots to trying to placate Cody in the kitchen, saying they're not trying to make him mad. And Cody finally just sits all the adults down in Mary's living room and addresses to them that they are leaving on Tuesday, full stop. Janelle's concerned, but Cody is trying to put a brave face on it and says, look, they can actually pull us over any time. We're not exactly hiding. Which I actually thought was a pretty valid point. Leon raises their hand, flanked by their sisters, trying to ask a question. And Cody, clearly fed up with where he thinks this is going, says, you're going with us. Before Leon can say anything... Mary comes to Leon's defense, gets kind of annoyed, and says they know that. And Cody says, fine, but don't be stubborn or mean about it. 
Cody, I think, is just done. I think he's done trying to placate people. I think he's done trying to indulge his kids. He's just exhausted. Leon seems to roll with it fine, but just asks with a big hopeful smile, but can I come back? On the couch, Cody says he tried to be kind. He tried to be sympathetic. And Mary soothes him and says she knows. I'm not trying to be too hard on Cody for running out of patience, but still, this is your thing, dude. Leon tells the camera that they have to accept the move. They're pausing a lot and looking away, holding back tears. Says it's tough, but it's two years until they graduate. Until then, they're all in it together. Dayton gets his birthday party. Thank goodness, gets a big chocolate frosted sheet cake that I would eat, but as you know, I'll eat any cake. I like cake. Cake and babies. That's my thing. That's my vibe. There are way worse vibes, by the way. Dayton opens presents. He seems really happy. Looks really fun. I'm so glad. There is chaos at the big house, though. Rooms are half-packed. Beds don't have sheets. Teens are stressed. Adults are stressed. Logan is really stressed. In fact, he's freaking out a little bit. There are piles of boxes everywhere, art taken off the walls. Christine even name-drops TMZ as finding out, and they've been all around the house. This is to my point about why they should at least move from the big house, because seriously, the public just has way too much access to the space. And I guess it turns out Janelle wasn't all that paranoid, because people are showing up. I guess leaving right away is a good idea. I mean, TMZ can't arrest them. But I see, again, why they wouldn't want the kids exposed to that kind of thing. Logan is coming across very overextended. In a trailer, he's just berating Payton for having too many boxes, aggressively quizzing him on what's in this box with your name on it. And Payton says, clothes, stuff I need. And Logan, like, snaps at him, says, it better be. I'm not judging Logan for this. I'm really not. Logan has been parentified. He shouldn't be having to run all this. This shouldn't be his problem. But he's being really cruel to Payton in the moment. And like, adult Payton is whoever he is. I'm not talking about that. Payton right here is a little boy. He just found out days ago he has to leave everything behind. His home, his friends, his school. And he wants to bring boxes of toys. Because for a kid, your toys are your friend. My toys were my friends as a kid. They were my escape. What is he going to bring? You know, he's giving up everything. And again, I'm not mad at Logan because Logan is doing what his parents have told him to do and have empowered him to do. But he even calls Payton's toys worthless. Oh, I don't know. This may not connect with anyone else. I just felt it deep down. I don't know. Cody changed into a traveling button down, you can tell, because there's no medieval crest on the back. So it's not for business. He heads over to Robin's rental. Since they don't own it, that's got to be completely cleared out. Robin starts rambling a bit, not really making much sense, and then drops the, this is not the America that I learned about when I was in school, and does her kind of performative, rueful shake of the head. So this is one of those things I think I'm noticing Robin does. Robin likes to pre-plan lines. You can really tell when you watch this, because before she delivers that line, she's just kind of all over the place, quiet, almost mumbling. And then she gets into this cadence she only does when she delivers a line that just sounds weird. And I've decided I think it's because she has practiced or at least planned a certain things she wants to say when she's got a good moment for the camera. You see it when they do the panel, when she does the don't make me a victim, sweetie. It's that same kind of situation. Just really awkward. Go back and watch it if you can. Let me know what you think. 
One of my least favorite moments in editing of the entire show, when they're packing up the back of the truck and there's a big siren. Now, earlier in the same episode, they show this as like a lead into the commercial to keep you watching. And it's clearly a fire truck siren. It's not a police siren. They've got to be different because they want you, the officials do want you to know what's going on in your community. When you hear a siren, they want you to know, should I be worried about a fire? Is that a police? What's going on? So when they show this scene now in the actual episode, they've dubbed over a police siren over the fire truck. And they also added some horror movie string instruments. I just, I don't know. I hated it. It's just too much. It's too obvious. On the couch, Cody says that a police siren went off and spooked them. He admits that they're being paranoid. So he decided, let's just pray. And this honestly seems like a good idea, given their outlook on life. So Cody gathers everyone up in Robin's empty living room and says they're driving until they can't stand it. And we'll see how that goes. It makes the alarmingly gross statement that they'll go until their navels are scraping their backbones. And to his credit, that did make me not want to eat anything. Cody pauses a lot, gathers his thoughts, says they're almost leaving under duress, which is a weird qualifier. So he wanted to basically bring peace through God. And he seems quite serious about it, not breaking eye contact with the camera while speaking. They huddle up, and Cody leads them in prayer in what I thought was a very moving scene. Can't help but wonder if maybe they should have kept doing this kind of thing more. The producers put in a ukulele cover of Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam that I honestly just genuinely disliked. No disrespect to the artist. Now, if they had done Nirvana's cover of the Vaseline song from Unplugged, that would have been good. You know, Jesus Don't Want Me for a Sunbeam, that would have been rad. A lot of quick shots of the empty rental, dead roses from the wedding on the window blinds. Christine, I think selling it to herself, says they had to go because if they stay, they'd get broken up, which isn't necessarily true. And then their kids would raise their own kids in fear like they were raised. And there's a nice bonding moment where they all kind of agree and build on each other's thoughts about how, in essence, you know, the laws haven't changed, but people do accept them. They are embraced by a lot of people. It was just a nice moment. You, you don't see all the adults kind of agreeing with each other all at once, hardly ever. Anyway, they are off. The truck, vehicles, everything's loaded. And Cody on the couch, frustrated, says, not even 11, 12 miles. All of a sudden, problems. Light goes off in Cody's car and the tire is busted. Cody and Logan can't fix it. And they happen to leave on MLK Day so they can go basically nowhere to address it. Robin even starts talking about how stressed the kids are getting and how she has to keep them comfortable, which has got to be really, really hard. Cody, because they hadn't gotten clearance legally to say Walmart, says that they found an open department store. <laughs> it's Walmart. It's actually pretty funny. They only could show like the tire part of the store too. no logos. It was great. But he bought a tire that doesn't fit, which I'm sure will be fine. He puts it on, calls it a stinking expensive tire. Stinking and expensive. Kind of like a baby. Cody very stressed at this point on the couch. Eyes wide. Says they were going and then we hear the producers in a separate car as they're filming the Browns car talking about what's happening because they see another flat tire, this one on the van. Christine says that Cody was angry. And Cody says, not a chew at the situation, which we'll see. And he starts to kind of lose it. At the side of the road, Logan is just kind of like, what can you do? He says, I don't know, it's a good start, 25 miles in two to three hours. Poor kid. 
Mary and Robin showing this bond they used to have are really rolling with us, keeping good humor much better than Cody, joking around, saying we did do a prayer first, right? And Robin even makes Mary laugh, calling it a wonderful experience. I was impressed with how they handled this. Cody screws up more by putting the wrong spare on Christine's vehicle, which just absolutely dirt roads the car, so nice job. Cody is such a clear picture of the impacts of not only bad decision-making, but bad tire maintenance. You want to go rotate your tires? Watch this episode. I am so stressed. Cody starts yelling at the camera on the couch, saying they earned this 20 miles. It took our entire lives and our buddies, our bodies, I don't know, he's either hungry or he killed someone. He says, we're not giving up this hill. So I guess he's going to keep running up that hill. And we do find out later he made a deal with God. Anyway, Janelle just did what they should have done a while ago and found a hotel. Good job, Janelle. It's the next morning. Everyone's refreshed. They're up and leaving the hotel. Cody in a much better mood. Had a snack and a little night-night. Says he's ready to rock and roll, but we'll see. They do actually drive for four hours before the trailer now gets another flat tire. We see a state trooper that pulled over by a sign that says they're nearby both Parowan and Summit, Utah. Did you know Summit is an unincorporated community and census-designated place in Utah? I didn't. Population of 160. I think we should all meet up there and party. I wonder if they have a Waffle House. Parowan, too. Mary, it turns out, could have just dipped right to Parowan right now. Anyway, more horror movie strings for no reason, trying to make us stressed about a state trooper who is clearly just making sure they're safe because they have a flat tire. On the couch, Christine says 24 hours since they've left, and Mary, with very feathered hair, says, hey, we gotten 200 miles, not great. Christine kind of dressing Cody down on the side of the road because she has had it. And Cody, I think, because he's rested, is handling it pretty well. Christine just stomps off, though, and to be fair, she's probably one of the ones managing all these hungry, angry, stressed kids. It's got to just be so hard. And Cody on the couch says with pride, his stubbornness set in. His neck is stiff. This is all to say Cody doesn't want to stop. He wants to make it the rest of the way. And Mary's smiling and happy and even bashful, talks about seeing the Vegas lights on the hill and thinking, this is home now. It's a really nice moment for her. The kids also cheer as they pass the border into Nevada. Cody asks Mary if she felt happy, and he sounds surprised when she says, yeah, and calm. And Cody calls Vegas his Plymouth Rock. Cody very subdued, emotional, talking about getting into the rental, very relieved, I think. The rental house looks nice. I'm not a fan of the carpet, but it looks like a big place. Got kind of Airbnb decor, you know, kind of just inoffensive stuff. The adults all have to sign the temporary lease with Mona around a big table, and Cody just getting it done. He talks about asking God not that long ago, have you got my back? And on his 43rd birthday, he says, God said, yep, I do. Don't you wonder if he still feels that way right now? We finally end this episode with Madison watching her parents signing the lease and the producer asks her what's wrong because she's got like tears in her eyes. And she says, really? She says, I hate it here. I want to go home. Some people call her like petulant in this moment. I just think she's a heartbroken kid. Wow, that was an emotional episode. Quite a roller coaster. Thank you so much for listening to it. I hope this was a positive part of your day. That's really important to me. If you want to follow the Sister Wives Professor Facebook is a great way to do it. Go ahead and just search for me there. Of course, if you want more content, access to chat and all kinds of other stuff, 
patreon.com slash the sisterwives professor. If you just want to talk to me, send me an email, the sisterwives professor at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Adam. I'm a teacher. I'm a researcher. And I'm a follower of Sister Wives. And I hope this podcast was informative or entertaining. And if all it was was just nice noise, I will be your noise. It's a privilege for me to be your noise. Be kind to yourself. You deserve kindness. I'll talk to you really soon. Oh,